Thank you very much, Hilary. Do keep that open. We're going to have a look at especially the, the last little bit of Ruth there and that family tree in the next few minutes. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. Well, that's how Charles Dickens began one of his novels, describing the world of two centuries ago as a world very much a mixture of hope and despair, of the worst and the best of times. And as we think about today, uh, these two centuries later, I wonder if you feel, well, the world's now a better place than it was when Dickens, or the period that Dickens was writing about then. Um, have we become a better place? Certainly in many ways we have, haven't we? I'm sure we'd all agree. Uh, modern technology has brought many improvements. You know, just, just think of medical care and life expectancy in the developed world. Um, well, think about how uh, the globally, at least, um, poverty overall has decreased. But at the same time, you might think, well, it, it, it's hardly the best. It's perhaps the worst of times, uh, just in our own culture. Uh, there's an increasing intolerance, isn't there, towards people of different opinions. We don't seem to be able to, to dialogue and discuss things anymore. Um, there's a confusion about things like uh, rights and wrongs, the dignity of human life at the beginning of life or indeed at the end of life. Very confused, um, dark moral culture we're in. And that picture of is it the best, is it the worst, uh, is the world a better place than it was then, it's actually not a bad picture for the culture of Ruth either. And their world, Ruth's world, um, another nearly 3,000 years further back. And so if you're new here tonight, today, or just haven't been here for the whole series, a quick sketch of the story of Ruth so far, it's an amazing story. And um, We saw in, in Ruth chapter 1, it's just a short story. There were famines and there were funerals. It was, in many ways, the worst of times, a very bleak picture. Naomi emigrated from Israel to the foreign land of Moab, looking for food uh, with her husband. Their godless sons married Moabite women. Um, but then all three of the men died, leaving all three women as widows and still childless. Naomi then heads for home, perhaps hoping for better times to begin after that bleak start. They arrive back in Bethlehem. Ruth, uh, her daughter-in-law from Moab, insists on coming with her to Bethlehem. So the, the worst of times are beginning to look a bit brighter. Ruth happens to choose to go and collect spare barley in the field of Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's and a very influential, wealthy man. She realises that Boaz has both the kindness and the ability financially to support Naomi, if only he will agree to marry her, Ruth. Naomi's too old now for marriage, it seems. So she makes a very bold marriage proposal, which Boaz graciously 
accepts honoring Ruth's faithfulness. And we saw last time, um, as Boaz skillfully saw off competition for the marriage, for the hand of Ruth, and marries her, not long afterwards, uh, they celebrate their wedding, and then their child, Obed, is born. And so Naomi's story has gone, hasn't it, from worst, certainly to much, much better. And then you get to this reading that Hillary's just read for us, which is, you haven't got to be like a Hebrew scholar to tell me, it's very different from the, almost the love story that's gone before, isn't it? It's a family tree. It's a list of names, ten of them. And you ask, don't you ask, what is that doing tacked on the end of the book of Ruth? How has this story about Ruth marrying Boaz gone to being a family tree at the conclusion? Well, I think there's a bit of a clue here as to what we're really meant to understand is the message of the whole book. We've seen some potential messages, some half-truths here. We've certainly seen there is a theme of faithfulness, of kindness in here. Ruth and Boaz both show that tremendous love for others. We've seen a a message here of how God is at work behind the scenes of human life. That's certainly true. But actually, I think these last verses tell us that's not really the point of this book at all. This is not a book primarily about how to be a good believer though the Bible's full of that wisdom, or even about how God works for good in all things. So again, the Bible teaches that. It's actually a book not of moral truth, but of gospel truth, good news. This is a book about gospel, not morality. And these verses, I think we'll see when we get into them now, show how that is, what I mean by that. So here I'm just going to pick up two big gospel themes of the book of Ruth, good news themes of the book of Ruth. I think you'll see where we're going with this. Here's the first of those big themes. They're both very simple. The first theme is that foreigners become family. Foreigners become family. I'm using the word foreigners there in the broadest sense. It could mean ethnically foreign, as Ruth is, but it could mean foreign to God's people, strangers to God's love in whatever way that might be. So Ruth arrives in Bethlehem as an outsider, a foreigner. She's called the Moabitess in this book several times, and that was a disparaging term in Israel in those days. She's a foreigner. She's a stranger to the Lord and his people. She has no hope of a place, a claim on God's covenant, God's commitment to his family, his people. It's the worst of times for her. She's in in real peril. But in the Lord's goodness, as we've seen, God has planned for her to marry into his people, to marry, in fact, a second time into the family of Elimelech, to marry, in the end, Boaz. And the family tree she's being brought into is actually full of foreigners. She's not the first one. We've seen this before a couple of weeks ago. But uh, having gone through all this story of coming from Moab to Bethlehem, gleaning the field, marrying Boaz, we then discover that an ancestor of Boaz, in our reading, verse 18, is Perez. 
That's as far back as the tree has taken it. Now, Perez was a son of Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah's one of those tribes. And Judah's son is Perez. And Perez is an interesting story. His mother was called Tamar. You can read this in Genesis. She was a foreigner, a story really rather like Ruth's. She married um, someone who died, an Israelite who died. His brothers should, by custom, then have married her to keep the line going, but they refused to. And so she eventually tricked Judah into giving her a son, to put it euphemistically. She becomes pregnant, and Perez is born. So Perez's mother is a foreigner. It's a very complicated story, too. Just like Ruth is a foreigner. And God's brought her into his family. And that pattern of foreigners being brought into God's family, into God's great plan, continues. Because if you wouldn't mind just turning with me, we're going to go to one other passage now, uh, before we come back and look at that Ephesians passage too. Page 965 to Matthew chapter 1. The beginning of the New Testament, which starts not with a lovely story about Jesus, but with a family tree again. We won't read the whole thing, but Matthew chapter 1, page 965. Here is a family tree. It's in three sections. It finishes with Jesus in verse 16. Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. That's our Christmas story. How does the story start? Well, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And here we go, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, his twin, whose mother was Tamar, we've seen her. And then this is very like what we've seen in Ruth, isn't it? Very similar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, don't worry about all these names, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, here he is, we've seen him, whose mother was Rahab, we didn't know that, Boaz the father of Obed, we've seen him, whose mother was Ruth, we know her, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, as we've seen last week, the father of King David. This is a story full of foreigners, people who weren't by birth part of God's family, but were brought into God's family by grace. Yes, by marriage, but by grace, ultimately. We've seen Tamar already. Uh, We've seen Ruth already. There's a third one there, isn't there? Rahab. And again, Rahab, you can read about her in Judges. She's a Canaanite prostitute. So she's a foreigner, and more than a foreigner. Uh, And Matthew tells us she was mother to Boaz, certainly an ancestor of Boaz, the hero of Ruth's story. So we've seen, haven't we, you you might be a foreigner to God in whatever way, ethnically, uh, culturally, socially, relationally, just just you, you haven't been close to God. As none of those three women were originally, but wherever you've come from and whatever you've done, in fact, because a couple of these are quite shady ladies, Whatever you've done, God can bring you into his family through faith. An amazing thing we've just seen, where's that bloodline end up? Where's that family tree end up? Jesus. Not just David now, but Jesus, the king, 
the bloodline of the Messiah of God. God's chosen king includes all of these strangers, foreigners to the covenant. Family from foreigners. So the second reading that Hilary read just now from Ephesians 2, if you want to look it up later, it's on the service sheet there for you. We saw, didn't we, that the phrase is there, that we, and Paul there means we Gentiles, not just Moabites, but everyone who's not Jewish, we were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. We were foreigners without hope, without God in the world, but now. But now, because we don't just live in the days of Ruth now, but we've wound forward another thousand years to the days of Jesus, and of course, another 2,000 to us today. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and that's me, that's all of us who are Gentile, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, something even Ruth didn't know, the blood of Christ. So that's the first big theme, the gospel theme of Ruth, that foreigners, whoever we are, can become family in Christ. And that's a tremendous thing. If you and I are believers in Christ already, if you're a Christian this morning, take heart, take courage from that, because you and I can be so grateful, can't we, that whoever we are, through faith, we are no longer foreigners to Almighty God, the God of mercy and grace. He's brought us near through the blood of Christ that we're going to remember in the communion service, the sign of the new covenant this morning. Remember that we are now people with hope, with God, where before we were without both. And if you remember the days before you came to Christ, you'll remember how different that feels. And if you're here this morning and God is in some way a stranger to you, perhaps you've never known him, perhaps you've kind of drifted away from over the years and you're looking to see, will he still love me? Will he still take me back? Take comfort from Ruth's story that God's family includes people like you, people like me, people who've perhaps gone far away, people who've just never perhaps known his love in person. And he brings us near, as he did with Ruth, as he did with Tamar, as he did with Rahab, as he's done with billions around the world in Christ ever since. You may be an immigrant to this country yourself, as Ruth was. You may just be someone who's new to church, who walked in from our community locally, who came because you knew someone here. And we're going to see in coming weeks that the shape of The gospel, the good news, is the shape of God's open arms, Christ's open arms, there on the cross, shedding his blood to bring us near when we were far off. So the worst of times just got a whole lot better, doesn't it? Because foreigners become family. Here's our second big gospel theme. Foreigners become family, but the second one is this. Rulers become redeemers in this story. Rulers become redeemers. If you just turn back to Ruth now, you'll see that the family tree that we were in, um, page 270, if you're there. The family tree includes 
ten names. Probably there were more uh, in this line than are included here. It's, it's selective. Ten selected, perhaps, because ten um, in the Bible is, is a kind of number of completeness. Often it was a, the number of a family tree in the ancient world. But ten names. We've seen Perez, who connects us right back to the book of Genesis. We don't know very much about some of the others, but we know that a number of them, at least, were great rulers of their people. So Narshon, not someone who's kind of prominent in the Old Testament, but he's given actually a command over the whole tribe of Judah in the book of Leviticus. That 74,000 men were under him. So clearly a very powerful, influential guy, Narshon, a great leader in Judah. Uh, We know that Boaz is a great leader among the tribes of Elimelech. Um, He's a man of standing, was the word used about him in Ruth. And we know, of course, that David, the last name in that list of ten, Obed's grandson, may start out um, as a shepherd boy, but we know his father Jesse has personal links to the royal family of Saul, the king of Israel, and it's through that that David goes on to defeat Goliath and to become a great king of Israel. So here are these ten rulers that are named. One of them eventually becomes a king. And the book of Ruth is telling us that throughout salvation history, through the history of God's people, God has been sending rulers to his people and he's going to send a king one day. So when God brings Ruth and Boaz together, her story changes, Ruth's story changes from the worst of times to much better times. She is married, she's secure, she's got security for Naomi, her mother-in-law, and then they have a son to inherit their family's estate. But the times we've just been told are going to get better yet, because Ruth is going to have not just a son, but a great-grandson who's going to be King David. God is bringing his purposes about to send a king through this family. And we now know, having looked at Matthew chapter 1, don't we? Something else. We know that this family tree is going to go on for a lot more generations, all the way down to the birth of Christ. The great, great, greatest descendant of David. King of kings, Lord of lords, who will bring his kingdom of forgiveness and peace and joy, and hope. Now today, we're used, aren't we, to rulers using their power for selfish ends, you know, to line their pockets, to push their own agenda, often oppressing others in doing so. But in Ruth's family tree, we've got a number of rulers who use their influence, their power, to serve others. The rulers here become redeemers. We've seen that Boaz, who marries Ruth, becomes a redeemer. Um, He buys back the estate of Naomi so that her family can keep it for posterity. He does the right thing. He marries Ruth, a foreigner, in order to do that. All sorts of sacrifices he's making there. He is a redeemer to Naomi and Ruth. We saw last time, verse 14 and 15 that the the midwives when Obed was born said, the Lord has not left you, Naomi, without a kinsman redeemer, someone to protect you and use his resources to bless you, 
may he become famous throughout Israel. It's surely not Boaz they're talking about. It's Obed, the baby. He is going to care for Naomi and Ruth in their old age. He will be their redeemer. He'll use his power to serve them. And then we've seen Obed is not the story end either. He won't become famous in Bethlehem ultimately, but someone else will, someone called King David, also from Bethlehem. He will become famous throughout Israel as king. And he won't be faultless, you can read his story in Samuel, but he will use his power to serve others, to bring a time of blessing and security for Israel that had not been seen before and really wasn't seen since. And we've just seen from Matthew, haven't we, that not David, but Jesus will be the one who rules his people and redeems us. He gives not just money, but his life on the cross to buy us back, to make his bride, his people, his own, to introduce his kingdom, a place of forgiveness and justice and peace and ultimately perfection. So today... We live, don't we, not in the days of Ruth, whether they were the worst or the best of times, we can debate. We live in the, uh, the, the period of history we're in now, which is 2,000 years since the coming of Christ. And we can debate, is the world getting better? Is the world getting worse? Is it a mixture? But we do know that where Ruth only saw a glimpse of David coming and didn't see even a glimpse of Christ coming, we look back and we see that kingdom begun, the kingdom of Christ, the Redeemer who came to give his life as well as to rule justly and graciously in his kingdom. Ruth looked at the face of Obed and she saw better times coming, didn't she? But we look at the face of Christ and see the best days coming. Days that no one else in the world can see without Christ. The kingdom of Christ fulfilled. Redemption and rule. Simply for all who trust and turn to him. So I think of a young woman we knew who once had a difficult family background and was single-handedly raising her two children. Uh, I mean, great difficulty. But then she found the welcome of the local church family. And through that, she heard the gospel about a saviour, a redeemer. It's then in Christ that things began to change, and she found forgiveness and peace and hope and confidence. And people like you and me, some people here perhaps, have not always known people who've used their power to bless us, have they? Sometimes they've used it to control us, to hurt us. But whatever we've experienced, we can know that in Christ we have a ruler who redeems, who uses his strength to bless us and to make foreigners into his family. Maybe this week each one of us will come across a needy person in some shape or form. And it may be that if it's a widow facing bereavement, a young man looking for employment, a couple battling with years of longing for children, Maybe that we can in some way help them and, and use our resources to bless them. Perhaps not, though. 
but we can certainly point them, can't we, to a redeemer, a ruler, a king, a saviour, who can meet all of their needs in Christ Jesus, whose kingdom is full of forgiveness and peace, whose spirit is freely given, whose full redemption is for now and for eternity when he returns. So you see, we can say from the story of Ruth and from Matthew's gospel that the world will become a better place, even if that's a mixed picture at the moment, isn't it? The world will become a better place when? When Christ returns and his kingdom is complete. Because there will be a day, whatever today holds for us, when sin is banished, death is destroyed, evil is ended, wrongs are righted, and Christ's kingdom is complete. So let's live in the strength of that hope and let's pray for that hope now. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the story of Ruth. We thank you that you are a king who loves to include in your people, even in your family tree, those who were once outside, those who once were lost and far off, those who once strayed. Thank you for forgiveness through your blood shed for us. Thank you for hope, for the fatherhood of God, for peace and security in him. And thank you for the promises of the day when glory comes, when evil is removed, when death is ended, when sins are put far away, and when we see you, our saviour, our king, our ruler, our redeemer, face to face. Help us to live and to long for that day. Amen.